I would like to begin by a welcome to country and by acknowledging Aboriginal elders, past and present and future, and acknowledge the land of the Gadigal people of the Aura Nation that I am working and living upon today. Today we are indeed very privileged to be in conversation with Dr. Bronwyn Bancroft, an artist and a socially engaged activist. Bronwyn, you are a, a proud Bundjalung woman. You grew up in northern New South Wales in Tenterfield and you are a custodian of the Bundjalung people, protecting their deep culture and their long history. You are a very successful artist with a long, impressive history of making art and exhibitions nationally and internationally. Your work is in major collections, including the art galleries of New South Wales, Western Australia, Queensland, and the National Gallery of Australia. As well as Parliament House, the Powerhouse Museum, and significant collections held by Flinders University, Sydney University, Queensland University of Technology and the State Libraries of New South Wales and Victoria, as well as the New York Print Library, the Governor of Tokyo's collection, the Royal Collection of Sharjah and the Centre for the Study of Political Geographies in the USA. And this is only a very, very tiny, small selection of what's indeed been a very, uh, is a very impressive list of significant institutions that have sought to collect your work. Bronwyn has expanded her art practice to include illustration for many books and has a long history of writing and illustrating children's books that most recent, uh, the most recent being Coming Home to Country, which brings Indigenous stories to future generations and has also been translated into Chinese. Bronwyn is also a deeply committed social activist, engaging with the political frameworks of power that impact on her as an individual Aboriginal woman and on her Indigenous community. And she successfully blends her creativity, her art, and her social engagement into a cultural activism that influences and informs her as an Indigenous artist. So it is no surprise that she has, uh, that she was a founding member of Bumali Aboriginal Artists Cooperative and that her most recent accomplishments in completing her PhD at Sydney College of the Arts is entitled Passion, Power, Politics of Aboriginal Art, Does Inequality Exist for New South Wales Aboriginal Artists? And I think we certainly will have passion and uh, a discussion on politics and power today uh, in the art of Bronwyn Bancroft. Bronwyn, you have lived many lives into the and into the extraordinary life that you are that you have lived and are living still today. So let's go back to the beginning. Can you reflect upon growing up in a colo in colonial Australia? particularly about your experiences around the colonial frameworks that impacted on you as a young woman, your language group and your culture? 
Um, thanks, Nick. That was a very uh, lengthy introduction and sounds really weird when you hear it. Um, but the accumulation of that stuff uh, really, it doesn't interest me that much. I'm really glad that people acquire stuff, but it's not what I do my work for. Um, I'd like to acknowledge the Awapo people. I'm uh, in my studio in Byron Bay, um, and uh, I, I'd like to acknowledge the elders past, present, future of the land that I am working on. Um, and to answer your question, um, well, I was born in Tenerbelt, um, and my father's Aboriginal, and my mother is Scottish and Polish. Um, I was the last of seven children. And uh, growing up in a small country town was incredibly, on one, on one um, side, it was uh, fantastic because you were in nature. Um, and on the other side, it was really constricting because you had all of the conservative values of a small country town and predominantly non-Aboriginal people like my father and Mr Neville Binge were two of the uh, Aboriginal men that moved into town. Um, so that was almost unheard of, to have an Aboriginal person living in a house that they bought in town. So my Scottish grandfather um, let Dad borrow £150 um, to buy a house for his... Well, I, I turned up when they, when they got the house, so that's 62 years ago, and it was met with quite a bit of resistance but you know our family played sport we were involved um and I got out of there at 17. Um I, I was determined to I'd had a policeman pull me over at 15 with uh flaring lights and I'd been told by an Aboriginal friend of mine um Raymond Giro that he was out to get me um to rape me so I was pulled over um, by a squad car with his um, lights flashing and he pushed, like got me off my bike and he said, I'm going to get you. And when you've got the threat of that and you're living in a small country town, I mean, I didn't do anything wrong. I was just a young girl. And to have that intimidation lets you know that you're on the frontier. So I quickly skedaddled out of there. Um, I fell in love with my teacher at high school um, and I had an affair with my teacher um, and I left with him and I married him and I had two children with him. Um, so it was, and I have to thank him for that actually because if it wasn't for um, Ned, I wouldn't have got out of Tenerfield, I don't think, um, with the security of somebody who really cared for me. So it was completely not the wrong thing to do but um, we ended up being married for a long period of time and it was... Uh, it was a great way to get out of Tenerfield. <laughs> and I do go back to Tenerfield, but, and, and I don't have any dislike of the town. I just, I've always found and struggle with racism in small country, remote, rural areas. Yeah. Did you go directly to enrolling in the Canberra School of Art? Well, I, luckily, um, I, when I first started high school, I was told that I had a 90 IQ because I was Aboriginal, I was in the lowest classes. Um, and when my husband-to-be arrived with a cohort of very progressive thinkers from out of town, about six or seven uh, um, teachers came into our, uh, our high school and uh, my husband-to-be said, oh, my God, that girl's really bright. Like, why is she in the bottom classes? So I got elevated to the B classes and then eventually I got 
into the A classes and then I eventually, um, you know, progressed to doing my high school certificate. I progressed to getting a universe, early university entrance to the Canberra University, Australian National University, and also Armidale University. So I was going to get out of um, Tenerville, but it was very much a... Um, it was being elevated as a kid who was told that she was going to go nowhere to ending up being a kid that actually I did pretty well in my high school certificate. And I did apply for Alexander Mackey, but in the last two years of my um, art teaching, we didn't have, we only had two people that were doing um, advanced or first level art. And so we didn't have a teacher. So we had uh, to work with the correspondence school in King's Cross and do a couple of designs. So I did apply for Alexander Mackey, but I was told I was not good enough, um, which is probably the case even today. Um, Kofa, I think it's become. Um, and uh, I did get into the Canberra School of Art. So I was super excited about that, but it's a long way from home. Um, and yeah, so I pulled up stakes and, and moved there. It's 500 miles from Tenerfield and it was quite an abrupt start to a new life. And how did you realise that you wanted to be an artist? What, what were the, the, the things that sort of like inside you that were, were wanting to pursue a career as an artist? And what did being an artist mean for you at that time? Um, I think it sounds weird, but um, my mother was uh, very determined that we all went to Sunday school you know, to, to make sure that we had manners, clean up our act, be polite, believe in God. Um, so that's kind of religious stuff was supplanted in my life. Um, and it was very funny because I had a very low self-esteem. Um, and uh, from incidents that occurred to me when I was a small child, which I won't go into, but what I did um, was I had a fantastic t Sunday school teacher who was an artist um, her name was Bea Morton, and she took an interest in me. Um, and she got me to start drawing everyday objects and everything. So for me, art has always been a passport to self-esteem. Um, it's always been a way of uh, rewarding myself creatively and making myself feel better, making my family's history come to uh, life, making the history of the struggles of people in my family predominantly the major focus of my art career. So I think probably at the age of 14 to 15, um, I kind of realised, I also used to submit stuff to the Tenerfield show and you'd get two bucks for first and a dollar for second and I used to clean up. So I'd make like $12 and I was like, yeah, you get $12. Like, so that kind of piqued my interest and I was like... You should have put that in my introduction as well. <laughs> well, it's a big thing when you're like 15 and you're getting $12 in one go and, and like our family, our family weren't, we're very, you know, just we had a veggie garden and, and not a lot else and seven kids and, yeah, and money was um, sparse, sparse, I mean, yeah. And, and back back then uh, was was the art you know even though it was early, very early was it reflecting uh, uh, Aboriginal perspectives Aboriginal issues your own culture your own language group the things that you were, that were in your environment that you were engaging with 
Uh, I think no. What predominantly what I've always focused on is nature, um, and a lot of the information that I've brought to light over the decades of my artistic existence have been extracting information out of my elderly family members. Um, so luckily, our family have had, and we've always lived on country. So we've never been moved off. We won't move to missions. My English grandfather um, fought for uh, our Aboriginal family to stay on country and he married two Aboriginal women um, and had nine children. Um, so I I'm always um, have absolute respect for him. So I think when you talk about the evolving story around the complicated nature of family, oppression, colonialist frameworks, um, and incidental things that, like, just have an impact on you for just being you. That kind of evolving story can only happen with maturation. And that's part of the artistic process is to, to take the beginning uh, kernel of your existence and then over time develop, work on it and create that, that, like, that sophistication around your artistic practice and... And, yeah, it's been amazing. It's been an amazing, you know, journey of reclamation, of invigoration and, um, you know, delving into history, trying to work out why people did that, reacting to that, painting that. But predominantly my, my biggest interest as a small, as a young student was the environment. I was always very big on the environment, painting country, painting my impressions of country. So subliminally, yes, it was always there, but not as an active, you know, ingredient in my artistic career. I, I think I've always said to everyone that I, I took on being an artist as an apprenticeship to myself and I tried everything before I was 50 and I, I, I kind of had it in my mind that I'd turn into a reasonable artist at 50, but I could try everything that I wanted to before then. So I did that. But, but it's interesting that 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 uh, in those formative years that 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 land and country and environment were so uh, foregrounded in your practice. Because in a way, when I look at your work, you know, um, land, country, environment is still an implicit part of your practice. Yeah, it's been. Um I mean, I remember when I went to the art school um, in Canberra and they were like, oh, you're Aboriginal, like all that whole thing about people questioning people's identity. I, I mean, I'm, it's still ongoing and I'm over it. But my dad came down um, with my mum to visit me at, in Canberra and he walked through and they went, oh, my God, you really are Aboriginal. And they went, do I have to, you know, cart out my family to prove my Aboriginality? But it was, Canberra was quite a weird place in terms of, you know, going there. Um, but I made some great friends and I started the water polo competition there and um, I was offered a job in the photography department but I moved to Sydney in 1981 with my husband because he was an actor and wanted to pursue his acting so I decided to go with him and uh, start a new life in Sydney. Well, well that, 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 that's a good jumping point into Sydney because... Uh, you you came to Sydney Sydney in in eighty one as you just mentioned, and uh, 
you know, can you talk a little bit about this critical period of your development? Because contrary to Canberra, you know, Sydney was sort of like a, a, a milieu of, of new ideas and, 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 and political and social engagement. And there was certainly sort of a, a, a distinct um, feeling of, of, of a new history being developed in the, in the abri- for, for Aboriginal people, particularly in the urban environment. And it was an intense politically and culturally active environment. How did this environment shape your thinking and inform your, your art practice? Oh, it's there. It's, yeah, it's like a time warp, isn't it? It's like what we're currently living in. Um, I think, look, I didn't know anyone. I, I knew absolutely no one in Sydney and it was huge. Um, so I found it, like you've got to remember I was 17 when I left high school, so I was like 22 and a very naive um, woman, girl. I actually classify myself classify myself as a girl so when I got to Sydney I didn't know anyone but I I managed to do some waitressing and I got to know at Noonan's tea tea and coffee cafe in the Strand Arcade so that gave me some independent money because I've always earned my own money I've been working since I was 12 Um, and um, I didn't want my husband to be my keeper which he wasn't anyway Um, but I was always independent in terms of the way that I wanted to structure my life. So the, the only way that I knew to meet people was to get a job. Then I, I did apply to Alexander Mackey to do a, uh, a master's, um, but to be quite honest, the, they had the photography studios down in the rocks at that stage and, and it was all pretty crummy. Um, and so I pulled out of that. And then I um, started running restaurants. And I, so I did cooking for about three or four years. Um, and then and painting all the time and doing photography because photography was my major. But I stopped doing photography because I found that the, the, the fluids that I had to put down the drain, it just frightened me so I couldn't cause the environmental damage. So I stopped my photography and I'd always been painting all the way through and creating. Um, and then I kind of decided... Um, well, it was 1987 when I joined Bamali um, in that first 10. Um, but in, in 1985, I started my shop designer Aboriginals and it was kind of curious because my husband came back and uh, we, we probably weren't going so great. Um, and I had a, uh, I just had a baby. He, he was six weeks old. His name is Jack. And my husband walked in and went, oh, I just got a lead role in a movie. And I went, that's great. I said, I've just been up the street and taken the lease on a shop. Um, And the baby was six weeks old. So I used to put the baby in the window of my shop and um, sew and make garments. And I started with $3,000 in a bank card. So so no government assistance. Um, I just did it off my own bat. And um, it lasted for five years. And I completed that in 1991. Um, And I, I left the shop because I, I, my marriage had dissolved. So basically I started, um, I moved to being a full-time painter with two children in 1991. 
Can we just just go back <laughs> on on uh, designer your commercial enterprise, if I can call it that, uh, designer Aboriginals? But um, but it seemed to you know sort of seemed to suggest a social agenda for uh, generating an income from arts, fashion, and design, whilst critically in redressing deep social divisions and cultural inequity by training Aboriginal women in the art of business, which I found, you know, back then, we're talking about groundbreaking. We're talking about, you know, sort of like, like rethinking the economic equations for being an Aboriginal women artist or in fashion or design. And, and, you know, to, to, to develop an art business and, and encourage uh, the providing of commercial opportunities for women artists and designers, this, it was an extraordinary and inspiring initiative of self-determination uh, within your community. Yeah, I think, um, look, it, it was something that I always wanted to do. I've always been a person that's been a mentor to other people where I can. If I've got skills, I like to help assist um, and to create a greater understanding um, about what we're here for. Um, I mean, the shop, I, I'm, I'm really <clears throat> unsure about how many uh, young women went through there maybe. And this was helped by Elsa Dixon, who was an elder, who helped me with some uh, employment packages um, so that the girls could be subsidised to work in my shop. Um, and they learned how to deal with the public. We painted all of our earrings. We hand silk screened out the back. Um, it made absolutely no money, but because I, I threw everything back into it. Um, but it was it was an exercise in um, garnering support from the wider society. It was in Roselle, but we got more support than we got criticism. And then on the edge of that, we did get criticism because people would walk in and say, well, where are the real Aboriginals? We got that a lot. Um, so I do remember one incident where, where, where one of the girls who will uh, be nameless chased a lady out of the uh, shop and down the street for being a racist. Um, I'm pretty sure you couldn't get away with that now, but um, we were very proud of what we were doing and, and the girls... Most of the girls have gone on to midwifery and are running their own art careers, are running their own uh, artists. Um, it's really exciting to see. I, I mean, I'm not saying that I was responsible for that, but we did get a lot of um, support from each other during that period of time. And uh, I think as we look back on that, we appreciate it more. There was no support. I took it to the Department of Aboriginal Affairs to say that I could manage it as a business model. Um, and the gentleman that I was showing the portfolio to made some comments about the girls, which were of a sexual nature. And so I picked up the uh, portfolio and walked out. So it could have become a training institute um, under my management for a year. But after that, I decided that I didn't want to have anything to do with any government. Um, and I thought, obviously that that was uh, anything derogatory towards women and I'm out of the room. So especially those beautiful women. So, so during this period, would you describe yourself as sort of like, like, like uh, a, uh, a feminist or you were, uh, how did you engage with the feminist movement that was, that was uh, around at that time? 
Well, I, actually, I say I'm a womanist because I believe in women. Um, I think the feminist connotation, I've always been a wildly a wild feminist, feminine woman. I'm a woman. I, you know, I'm a bearer of children. I'm a mother. I'm a sister. I'm an aunt. I'm now a grandmother. I am fiercely determined to see that women have equal rights across the board and you know I grew up with three elder sisters and three brothers and I was the last so basically I grew up with three boys um, and so my determination as a young girl to be recognized for my skill my sporting skill whatever I, I was good at was fierce determination and I think that equality for um, gender equity has always been paramount in my life just as much as, as, as it's been around um, getting people to focus on more issues around Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in this country. And how, how did this impact uh, on your, your, your own art practice, your own art journey? Well, I think once I decided to become a full-time artist, with, well, I had two kids to look after, so that was in the marriage and hemorrhage. Um, so basically... I don't know, I'm just, I'm just a really hard worker. Um, so once I knew that I had to look after my children and, and care for them and provide for them, my determination became even more um, extensive and I was very determined that my children wouldn't be marginalised. Um, and so that, that hard work, um, really I pursued everything. If I could do it, I'd do it. Um, and I was lucky to get a break with Chenny Coventry um, from Coventry Gallery, who, so funny, because I only had a couple of paintings in a cardboard box and I went to his very fancy, very fancy um, gallery in Paddington and I turned up with, like, I don't know, beer carton sort of portfolio case with these paintings and I just showed him and he went, oh, yeah, you're all right. That's okay, we'll take you. Um, so that was, that was kind of cool and around... And 87, of course, Bramali started. And so in Chippendale, we were at 18 Mile Street. So that was exciting, progressive, political um, and hard work because, like, basically, you know, we had to do everything ourselves. Um, so, yeah, it, it was intense. Yeah. I can't say that I was in a fantastic place personally, um, but the work was flourishing because I was uh, I had to support my children through my art. Before we talk about Bimali, because that that's such an intrinsically significant moment, not only in your life but also in uh, the uh, uh, contemporary history of Aboriginal urban art in Australia. And the, the sort of what, what sort of work were you doing just before that Bimali period? Well, I was just paint. I was just painting, but largely, you know, a lot of the work I was doing is around fashion. So, you know, I when I went to uh, Sydney, I also started doing the markets at um, Balmain, um, and so I used to sell hand painted shirts for ninety dollars, and it was almost unheard of to pay that much money for a shirt. Um, but I sold those things, and then obviously in '87 we went to Paris, and you know, I did a um, a whole suite of um, fashion garments, but they were always like hand silkscreen and hand painted. So really the, the fashion was the uh, foundation for the painting, which was ongoing, 
but because but I was hand painting garments in huge lengths, and so I was doing really big paintings, which were then being cut up and put into garments. That was a great foundation to learn how to just paint. Um, and as I've said previously, I a lot of people like to lock you into a style that they like, and I was refused to do that. And I still like until I was fifty, and I found my the confidence in my line and what I wanted to use as my storytelling element, I ignored everyone and they're like, oh, we liked your old work. And I'm like, well, no, I'm not doing it, you know. Um, and I always think that's a trap for a young artist because suddenly they just do the same thing and, you know, they do it for two decades and then they don't know how to do anything else because they're, they're, they're painting for the market. I don't never wanted to really paint for a market. I just wanted to paint for myself. And, 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 and the market evolved around you, so it's the other way around. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I often say to people, you only have to live long enough as an artist to have success if you're a hard worker. Um, because I don't come from any point of privilege ever. I mean, I left Tenerfield with nothing. I think I had 20 bucks in the bank. Um, so I've never been a person that had any kind of privilege whatsoever. Um, did, never knew anyone, never had any money. Um, so that has been, you know, an, an incremental part of my journey has been the determination really to protect my family. And that is probably the greatest impetus for me doing any of what I've done is to, to protect, look after, cherish and respect my family. You know, and that, that's, <coughs> for me, that's reflected, that level of, of, of humanism that's reflected in your work in relation to community and your concerns for um, uh, country. But, you know, by, you mentioned Bimali. By 87, you're uh, what is already beginning as an extraordinary journey progressed with another, uh, within an extraordinary milieu of artists and activists, such as the um, extraordinary Michael Riley, Fiona Foley, Euphemia Bostock, Avril McQueen, Brenda Croft, Tracy Moffat, that led to the, and, and others, that led to the development of Bumali Aboriginal Artists Cooperative. Uh, uh, from, they're all from different nations and language groups, a diverse group with a clear intent of redressing the discrimination against Aboriginal artists and to create a visible presence of critically engaged uh, uh, art to create change in recognition of Aboriginal artists and the clearly political objective of, so, of social inequity. And particularly from the perspective of urban artists, and, uh, as it's seen from uh, traditional artists, can you talk about this this extraordinary time of of, of prevailing optimism? That that sense of that the wind of political change that was uh, so urgent at that time. Well, um, the other people, Jeffrey Samuels, um, Aron Raymond Meeks, Abel Quayle, um, Fernanda Martins, um, I think that gets the full cohort of 10, yeah, yeah. Um, Brenda Elcroft. Um, and Michael Riley really was the person who was, motiv was motivating, doing, motivating all of us. Um, but 
to be quite honest, without the activism of Gary Foley and Uncle Chica Dixon on the, uh, at the Australia Council where, where they were respectively, Uncle Chica was the chairperson and Gary was um, the manager of the Aboriginal, director of the Aboriginal Arts Board. We wouldn't have got off the ground. So we all, Michael largely um, went in and started requesting grants, information. Uh, so we got rental from the Australia Council, our first year rental. And we got an old, on top of an old bridal store at 18 Mars Street, Chippendale. And uh, we had our first show. John Newfong, um, the journalist, made the most rousing um, speech at the opening night. Charlie Perkins came in and bought a whole lot of um, paintings to go for the Department of Aboriginal Affairs. It was a state of euphoria because we had no idea that we were going to get like 500 people at the opening. You couldn't even move. It was kooky. Um, and then obviously the foundations were laid then with the beginning of that. But then once you start something like this, you've got to keep up the hard work. And, you know, the administration, the grants, it was boring. No one wanted to do that. We just wanted to have exhibitions and have fun and we didn't really want to clean up after the after party after the opening we didn't want to do the prep so you know it ended up migrating into a different world um you know it, it, there were difficulties within the structure of what Ramali and it be, as it evolved but without it I don't think that um and I don't think any of us were sophisticated artists by any any way you know, I, um, but I think our journey has um, allowed us to be viewed in a different context historically. Now, a lot of the definitions that occurred around that was awkward, non-Aboriginal categorization. How do we put you there? Um, you know, as far as I'm concerned, I'm a traditional Bundjalung artist. So this is my, my tradition is in my country. And so when people are constantly trying to categorise you to be a specific person without, um, without understanding anything of your history, they really need to have a conversation with you instead of making an assumption. So there was a lot of this uh, rigour around, were you real? Were you authentic? What, you know, what's your story? How do you validate yourself? It's like, no, I don't have to validate myself. I was born, I exist in this space actually, I'm pretty happy being me because everybody else is taken. So I think we had to put up with a lot of ignorance in the initial um, days. And I'm hoping that that's better, but I'm not sure that it is. I mean, you know, I, I'm not sure what our direction is. It's like it's, there's so much going on at any given point and... Um, yeah, I've, I hope we made an impact, but I just, I, I, I hope we made an impact for the, for a better place for Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islander people in this country. It's, it's really interesting now, the, um, uh, the debates on, on Black Lives Matter and, and on uh, the deaths in custody and land rights that have never stopped and they still exist today. But at that time, I remember, you know, going to Bumali and, and, and remember, you know, sort of clearly, you know, sort of the, the demand for change was 
so ever-present. It was in your face. And it sort of struck me at that time that I was witnessing not only, not only this, this politically charged environment, but also the development of, of a contemporary urban Aboriginal art practice. Yeah, I think, look, you know, definitively some of the artists have been, I mean, I think existing as a state of political, you know, being, like as an Aboriginal person, you are political no matter what. Um, there is this pursuit around um, politicising of your artwork to, you know, uplift and highlight um, disadvantage. Some people do it, some, some artists do it, some don't. Um, so, for instance, I think of Euphemia Bostock and she just she navigates her artistic practice by thinking about the memories that were made with her old people, you know, when she's fishing or walking on the beach. She doesn't want to do angry, I hate white people art. Um, so, you know, that there's a distinction around, you know, I don't think anyone should be forced to create art um, to highlight a social injustice. We can, and people do, but at the end of the day, what's it going to do to get your work collected in a major museum if we've still got people dying in custody? You know, I'm interested in real change. I'm interested in societal change that reflects equality throughout the whole of society. I'm interested in engaging with people to make sure that there's a mutual admiration for each other's cultures. Um, and I'll probably die trying but that's that's the pursuit that I take. Which is it, it's it's really interesting because that that brings us to, you know, um, uh, your your other career, if I could call it that. You know, you've got this 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 wonderful art practice and your engagement with Bumali, which you still are so heavily involved with. And, and you know, it tips my hat to you. That's an extraordinary commitment that you've made, you know, that uh, uh, in relation to Bumali. But this this other other parallel career that, that, that oh, I won't call it a career, life, you know, uh, you were so heavily involved in... in um, advocating for Aboriginal rights, for artists' rights, uh, for women's rights. And that led you to be acknowledged and invited to the board of the National Gallery under Brian Kennedy. It also sort of like uh, brought you to uh, the chair of the New South Aboriginal uh, Visual Arts Committee. Uh, it also brought you to the NIAA and VizCopy and copyright, the, you know, in Aboriginal advocacy and also on the advisory committee of the Commonwealth Bank. So, so your, your practice is complex, and this is what I find remarkable, you know, and, and that earlier comment, the many lives lived, and you seem to sort of operate on so many different levels, making art, being a mother, now being a grandmother, involved in... in, in, in uh, 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 in promoting advocacy for your community. And, and this political uh, advocacy, you know, I, I think, you know, would you be able to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, well, I mean, one of the things that I always say to my children is uh, you get one life, live three. So uh, there's no point getting to your deathbed and, and having regrets. I mean, you must exploit, explore and you know, get into that life you've got. Um, 
In terms of advocacy, I think as I progressed and learned and matured, it really is something that, like, it's not made me a lot of friends in government, um, which, which doesn't really faze me. Um, but to not be in the room means that, um, that you, there is a voicelessness. There is an invisibility. Um, so you, I think you've got to take it up to people. And uh, I, I, I have to mention this because Betty Churchill was the, um, when I was on the board of the National Gallery, Bundook Marika had been appointed. And then I was appointed as the second Aboriginal person. And Brian Kennedy came in as an import and actually was pretty rude. Um, and I'd given him suggestions for a continuing board membership, an Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander board member. And he, his rebuttal to me was, I'm not going to put an Aboriginal, specific Aboriginal position on this board. Then I'd have to have a Vietnamese and a Greek. I'm, I'm like, this is our country, mate. You know, and then he skedaddled off back to Ireland. I, th I felt that was quite damaging because they've not had an Aboriginal board represent representation, I don't think, for quite a while. Um, it's unconfirmed for me now if they do have a, an Aboriginal board member on the National Gallery, but I'm not sure. Um, so with, in terms of advocacy representation, I've, I mean, you don't get paid to do these jobs. You, you very much, except copyright agency was the only place that you get paid. You do it because you want to advance the rights in a real time, pa passage of time. I'm not interested in wasting my time for the kudos of being on boards. I want to have an impact. I want to help. And if I can do that, then I will have achieved. I feel like my sense of achievement is, is okay. Yeah. I think that's a great point that you've made, made that, you know, it, uh, about being in the room because in a, in a way, way, you know, if you're silenced out of the equation, you don't have a voice. And what, you know, you said just a moment ago is, is placing yourself in those very seats of art power and those art debates where, where you're not only, only demanding to share in that power, but you're contributing to the changes that are so vitally necessary in, in how we recognise Aboriginal women artists in our community, how we recognise Aboriginal artists in our community and their right to express, you know, a vision for Australia that's not just a white preserve. Yeah, I think, look, it's, it's been such an interesting journey. I mean, you know, to complete a PhD at 61, thank you, Brad Buckley, for being my supervisor, um, uh, is... A, a, it's a passage of time like, to actually get that 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 actually finished because I started with um, Rhonda Craven at Western Sydney, but then Western Sydney moved to the Catholic University, and then I couldn't complete it at the Catholic University because at the same time that they transitioned her department where I was studying, uh, there was uh, there was a lot of political stuff around the uh, priests um, hurting children, and I just couldn't bring myself to be involved with anything Catholic. And so luckily I was able to transfer to SCA and complete um, the PhD, which, 
you know, it's, it's 60, 61 is not bad to notch up your fourth degree, you know, and you start studying at 17 and, um, you know, I never had enough time to really study. I just squeezed it in. So to complete that PhD, I, I wrote every day for six weeks and got up at three o'clock in the morning um, to fit it in with my career and everything. So I, I completed the largest passage of, of writing in a six to seven week period, starting at three o'clock every day and finishing at three o'clock in the afternoon. Um, and, you know, I've got serious RSI on my hands because I hand wrote the whole thing um, and had it typed up. So I'm really happy I completed it um, and I'm really glad I engaged in it because it's actually my story and I put down my story the way that I want it to be. And so that was a kind of a good thing to do. And, and tell me a little bit about AIM, the Australian Indigenous Marketing Experience. So Australian Indigenous Mentoring Experience. Mentoring, um, mentoring yeah. I apologise. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's fine. Now, like you, I write everything, handwrite yeah. everything, and my handwriting is <laughs> lousy. <laughs> <laughs> no, my son, um, well, I think, you know, Jack, uh, was lucky enough to get a scholarship to go to Paul's um, and he was a, quite a bright child which all of the three children I have luckily um, have got some intelligence um, and so Jack was offered a scholarship, he had to go for an interview, he was offered a scholarship at Paul's uh, quite a foreign concept to me, um, I did go to one event there and I quickly scarfed and said to him I could never, I think Sitting at the dinner table, I was asked by this very, very, very posh lady, darling, where did you go to school? <laughs> I went, oh, my God. I said, don't ever invite me to that um, stuff. So I, uh, he started, he saw that there was a deplorable um, gap around uh, Aboriginal education, um, you know, for, for students to get access um, so he started the Australian Indigenous Mentoring Experience 16 years ago. And basically we just used, I used to do the art, you know, classes for him and I'd jump in my car and we'd go out to unis and I'd, I'd supply all the paint, I'd supply all the paper. So we did that for a couple of years and then eventually Governor um, Murray Bashir, she gave him uh, a space at Sydney University. Um, and now we're kind of... Um, launching, especially in this COVID period, to a thing called Imagination TV and actually developing a university of imagination. Um, so obviously the setup with the mentoring has, has been difficult because there's no face-to-face -face with the students. So they've actually, um, and I hate this word, but I'm going to use it, they pivoted and they um, created a new uh, world for people to look forward to um, that is in the digital space, but it's about inspiring people to use their imagination. Um, so he's just stepped aside as the CEO and they, uh, I'm on the board of AIM as well, and they put in a beautiful woman called Taryn Marks to be the general manager and she'll take over the management of the organisation and he's going to be an artistic director um, to develop, you know, um, the creative element of AIM. So... Yeah, it's really exciting for him. He's 35. He's put in a lot of grunt work. He's had a lot of serious opposition and flack. And um, I've always got to say it, you know, if you're going to criticise someone for doing something, then I don't want to hear it. You know, if you're putting in the equal amount that that person's putting in, 
and often for nothing. You know, actually, I, I should rephrase that. When people say they do it for nothing, they do it for everything. So if I don't get paid, I'm doing it for nothing, but no, I'm not doing it for nothing. I'm doing it for everything. So with critics and people like that that try to pull people back who have a sense of purpose and passion, um, I largely ignore them, but I also would like them to pull themselves up and acknowledge the damage that they create by just being critical for the um, sake of criticism. It's boring. Well, you certainly are a proud, proud mother and the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. So you've done something really, really well, well in that, that regard. But, you know, just before we finish, I'd like uh, and uh, open up to questions. I'd, I'd like to perhaps shift our discussion to your work in writing and illustrating children's books. And that, that it, it not only, you know, brings your art and intersects into another world, but it would seem to me that uh, in these books you are bringing your art practice and your cultural knowledge together as an investment for the, uh, for the knowledge of the future. And you do it with, with, with a great degree of optimism that through education, knowledge, and as a custodian of your, your people, you're safeguarding the stories, the knowledge and the histories of your culture. And by transmitting them to children, hopefully it guarantees a different future. Yeah, I think um, it was an awkward uh, segue to become a children's book illustrator because I've never really had enough time in my artistic practice to take time out to uh, focus just on the book illustration. But, you know, I've illustrated 40, over 40 books. I can't, I'm not sure of the count. Um, and, you know, it's almost two a year because um, I started in 1991. But one of, the, um, one of the reasons I really wanted to do it because I, I did a book called The Fat and Juicy Place with Diana Kidd, who's unfortunately passed away. But it was... It was about this um, bird man and this little Aboriginal kid struggling um, with, with his identity in the city. And I, I thought, I, I, might, I might do that. I only had to do a couple of little drawings. Um, but then I was offered a portfolio, a suite of three um, stories that were collected by the anthropologist Roland Robinson. And I quickly realised that I needed to assert um, the role of the Aboriginal custodial storyteller in that. So what I did was I told them I didn't want the contract unless we found the, um, the custodial person that could, you know, get, mm -hmm. get attribution. So I didn't want Roland Robinson to get attribution for a story that belonged in an Aboriginal family group or a clan group. So when, when I told them, that, and it was quite a big contract, when I told them I didn't want the contract until we sourced um, and got permission, then that was my first baptism of um, fire around um, book illustrating. And, you know, look, to be quite honest, I well, I'm always honest, but the uh, children's books have given me an interface and have, have actually allowed me personally to make inroads into young people's psyches to give them the opportunity to get away from red gum boots and red umbrellas. Um, because we very much supplanted the English book illustration style in Australia 
and you know I'm I would like to see many more Aboriginal people um, undertaking to illustrate and write their own stories to fill in the deficit um, because you've got to remember that my father wasn't allowed to go to school that's only one generation ago um, but he could go to war and he could risk his life as a non-citizen of this country and he could become a corporal um, with no education um, and he could live with the, the, the idea that somehow he was not very good. So that's one generation away. Um, and I think when, we, um, when you're thinking about getting in all of the books that have been developed and the young people in Australia and internationally that get to read them and, and enjoy the artwork, it's such a reward for me. It's become such a reward. And now, if I'm lucky, the State Library has become the repository for my whole books that I create. So in years to come, you know, children will be able to go in there and see the whole of the book that I've illustrated, um, which I'm really glad that I've, I've decided to work with them and make them, you know, the repository for my book illustrations. And hopefully they'll be integrated into our education systems and networks because if we are to change the society and invest in the future, then we've really got to start rethinking and reimagining the whole education system. And in, in, in saying that, um, you're indefatigable, Bronwyn. You, you, you are extraordinary. You are, because I'm trying to, so I'm very conscious of the time. We've only got a few minutes left for some questions. Okay, am I talking? Yes, you but are. Tenerville wasn't your only place. There was lines for which you have remembered. I too stayed with Barney Dulce. Can you speak to the magic of that place? Well, Lionsville is our traditional area and we've always gone back there. Even though we lived in Tenerville, it was always school holidays. I actually um, bought my uncle's property um, off him many, many years ago as a struggling artist and I went and lived there for a year. Um, the place is really the cornerstone of all of my work. Yes, so Tenerville was my original place of birth, but Lionsville is where my heart is. Um, and my Auntie Dolce was an amazing woman. They ran the post office um, and where my place is now um, is right next to where my grandmother and grandfather um, first set up. So extraordinary history and, and you're very true. I mean, you're absolutely spot on. And it's uh, very spiritual, beautiful. And I was there for a smoking ceremony early this year. So yeah, extraordinary place. And it is magical. Actually, my uncle, a Pat, who died at 94 in 2015, he used to say it was a secret place. And I agree with him. The, the other question we ha ha have is that uh, uh, in the 80s, you know, the, uh, Sydney was characterised by an explosion in contemporary art and contemporary music. Well, where, where, did you, uh, where did you hang out and who were you listening to in the, that creative, fertile period? Oh, God, I used to love all of them. Like, I grew up with three older sisters who loved, like, all of those rock and roll people. Uh, I was doing live show. I was going to live rock and roll things at the Unity, you know, that had full brass bands, jazz bands. Um, i just follow around and go and have a bop. Um, and there were a lot of um, Aboriginal, well, not a lot of Aboriginal bands, but there were a lot of people starting to emerge. Um, 
in that time. But I had two kids and um, in so, you know, 32 years ago I was setting out so um, with my daughter, my second child, and um, just basically I, was, I didn't have a lot of time creatively. But I just like all music. I'm terribly... Um, I mean, these days I listen to a lot of soul music and loamy, loamy music for massage when I'm in my studio. So I like a more peaceful um, musical, you know, ambience. But I pretty well love musicians who create. Um, so except for heavy metal, I reckon that's the only one I can't go for. But pretty well I admire all the artists that, that do the creating. So... I'm pretty open to all music. And, and we have another question about inspiration. You know, you talked earlier about the importance of uh, land and country and environment. Uh, can you talk uh, 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 how, at the point where you understand and appreciate uh, land and country and so on, how does that translate into your artwork? Well, I think obviously you have to know who you are, where you come from, why you're here um, and what your purpose is. And then after that, your inspiration is endless. I mean, I have a multiple ongoing uh, projects happening at any given point and if I don't have projects going on, I make them up. So <laughs> I like to be busy and I, I work every day, um, but I also foster a nice walking in the you know, on the beach and uh, working in the gardens and, yeah. Roman, thank you so much for letting us into your life. Thank you so much for sharing so generously and so intimately uh, uh, about the many lives that you've lived and that I find it so encouraging that, that, that you know, um, that you are still practising, you're still making change, you're still contributing and that makes life worth living. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast. For more information, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney hyphen ideas. It's where you'll find the transcript for this podcast and our contact details if you'd like to get in touch with a question or feedback. If you haven't already, subscribe to our podcast so you never miss a new episode. Search for Sydney Ideas on Apple Podcasts or SoundCloud. Finally, we want to acknowledge that this podcast was made in Sydney which sits on the land of the Gadigal people of the Euro Nation. It is upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built.